Hello, I'm Molly Cooper and this is a Snapshot episode where we bring you inside scoops from the travel, design and creative spheres. It's the same Creator Spaces content, now in Coffee Break Conversations. Today we're talking all about seasonality and in particular eating with the seasons. I'm so happy to welcome Blanche Vaughan, House and Gardens food editor, who has also worked as a chef at some of London's most loved restaurants, including the River Cafe and St John's. She's now just released House and Garden's first new cookbook in decades, A Year in the Kitchen, which is a collection of recipes that make the most of each season. Blanche, welcome to Creative Spaces. I can't wait to get into all of this. How are you doing today? Hi Molly, it's really lovely to be here with you today and I'm looking forward to chatting. Me too, it makes two of us. Well, shall we get into it then and talk a bit about you first? Because I'd love to hear about your journey and your story to where you are today. Right. Well, it's been a it's been a really fun journey. And I have to say I was lucky in that I kind of knew what I wanted to do from early on. Um, As soon Mm -hmm. as I left school, I knew that I wanted to pursue this career in food. And to cut a long story short, I found my way to Italy, where I lived for almost two years, exploring food, learning about their food culture and learning the language at the same time and that was just a wonderful lesson in the sort of rudiments that have been the foundation of my cooking which is good ingredients cooked simply and served in an unfussy way. From there Mm -hmm. I came back to London and I actually did a couple of shifts in a restaurant owned by a wonderful British chef called Alistair Little in Soho. And a couple of shifts there were enough to teach me two things. One, that I wanted to cook in restaurants, and two, that I wasn't ready for it yet. So so off I went, and I did a year at Leith's um, School of Food and Wine. It was a diploma course. And it was very interesting because it wasn't the kind of cooking I wanted to do, but it was teaching me technically how to be a really good cook, Mm. which, of course, when I got my first job in a restaurant, which was Morrow in Clerkenwell, owned by the wonderful Sam and Sam Clark, who had met and trained at the River Cafe, um, I sort of shed all those, you know, very um, uh, properly taught cooking school techniques for the fast and furious methods of a restaurant kitchen. But it was such a great place to learn. They were really nurturing and we did really natural cooking. You know, we, first of all, they were, they were very interested in seasonality, but they were specifically um, inspired by Moorish cuisine. So Eastern Mediterranean, Spanish, Moroccan. So there were loads of spices and wonderful flavors and balances in their food. But we cooked amazingly over charcoal and they had a wood-fired oven. They had a stove as well, but, you know, most, you know, we're in in Clerkenwell you know in in a really quite central part of London and we're cooking in this way that has since become very fashionable but they I think were 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 amongst the first to be doing that after a few years there I moved on to the River Cafe where they also cook as you know in that wonderful wood-fired oven and it was there that I really understood 
what good ingredients meant in cooking. Ruthie Rogers, um, the chef proprietor of River Cafe, um, who was married to Richard Rogers, the architect, who's, who's sadly died now, but she always used to say to me, Mies van der Rohe always said, less is more. And she was at, right, and that was, that was the sort of philosophy of their cooking, and I really admired that. They would get in the most incredible ingredients I'd ever seen. These baskets of food would arrive from, obviously from Italy, because they were cooking a lot of Italian food, but they also sourced wonderful things from the UK. The fish was all day boat caught and would come in that day. They didn't even they didn't even know what they were going to be cooking often until that morning when the fishmonger turned up and they chose what they wanted. Or the vegetables at the right time of year were some were grown on this farm in um Essex Suffolk border and the guy would turn up with these baskets of food that he'd picked from the garden so I really understood sourcing and seasonality when I was working there between there and St John I had a couple of months off so I'd worked at the River Cafe for a few years I wanted to move on and learn a slightly different style of cooking so I got a job at St John and I had a summer off and Rose Gray who was the other chef proprietor of the River Cafe, said to me, you must go and work at Chez Panisse in California over the summer, which I did. So off I went with my bundle of knives. And I arrived in California and I really understood where where actually a lot of the influence for the River Cafe had come from because Alice Waters, the, the, um, the owner of, of Chez Panisse, had really... Brought, you know, we now we we now feel very comfortable saying farm to table, but this was something that had actually established itself over twenty years before, with places like Chez Panisse, where they had a real relationship with the people that were growing their food, and that was something that I was able to experience as a as an informal worker, as it were, or an informal, um, you know, I didn't have a contract because I was only working there for the summer. So on my days off, she'd send me off to the farms to meet the farmers who were growing their food. They had this incredible farmer's market culture out there. They still do. Um, And of course, so much can grow in California. So the range was extraordinary. Anyway, that was really, that was my grounding. And um, Mm -hmm. that has carried on through my work, in fact, to the point where I would say it really defines me. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I was so interested to hear from you and your perspective with growing up or like working in this industry, how you'd seen this sort of shift. But it sounds like good seasonal ingredients has always been at the heart of what you like to cook and try to cook and I don't know maybe it's just me but it feels like at the moment everyone's trying to eat more seasonally I was just trying I was just telling you about my own attempts and having to like cut down on avocados and you know it feels like it's having a boom along with these other big sustainability themes but that's amazing that even sort of 20 years ago there were restaurants really leading the charge and that you got to see that and experience that absolutely and it was something that I grew up with as well. My mother had a vegetable garden, so obviously we'd go out and pick what was growing in there or we'd go down the hedgerows foraging. So I've always understood how 
it's a very natural thing to eat seasonally. So if anything, I'm just so excited that people are getting into it again. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think think you're absolutely right. It's becoming a movement. Um, And I'm noticing it in the shops. I'm noticing specialist greengrocers popping up. Um, I'm noticing farmers markets being more of a pop farmers markets are they're they're kind of a leisure activity as much as anything and I think it's so nice for people to take their kids and and to see food displayed in a way that isn't in a supermarket aisle and to see the Mm -hmm. weird and the warty and the colorful and I've just come back from New York where um, I obviously made a trip to the farmer's market. <laughs> you know, most, most people go to their favourite clothes shops or their art museum, but my first place is the farmer's market. And that it, the way that the food is laid out and displayed, it shows such respect for the ingredients. And the other really crucial thing, which I think is becoming a little bit more common now in our experience of food is you have the opportunity to meet and talk to the person that actually grew it um and I've noticed you know the supermarkets are picking up on that story as they like to call it where they might name the grower even if it's a huge industrial farm but the point is that people like to look below the surface and they like to know where Mm -hmm. things are coming from and I think that's one of the things that one can do often in the farmer's market is, you know, get right to the root of the matter. Sorry for the part. No, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting. At first thought you were like, well, it's obviously much better for the environment, all the sustainability stuff, but it's actually incredibly grounding. And I think a lot of people are sort of looking for that to feel connected to the cycles we live in and to communities. And it's such a humble way of tapping into your local food producers and growers and feeling part of that and in tune with the seasons I so I think that's definitely a huge a huge draw like you say um the human side I think you're absolutely right and I think that with um with the sort of overabundance of food that we have available to us there can be a sense of homogenization and I think what something like a farmer's market or or even your greengrocer or even just looking at what's in the sort of seasonal section in a shop offers is it offers a reminder that the year is full of a, is, 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 is a rhythm um, and each part of the year is offers different produce. It offers a different way to, that we you know feel like eating you know we want to eat different food in autumn to what we want to eat in spring and food is is represents the way we feel as much as you know as as much as what it is that's sort of growing in the ground and I think that that's something that people have connected to and I think realistically um you know people's first priority is that it tastes nice what they're eating Mm-hmm. and the sustainable thing is taken up by you know fewer rather than the many but mm-hmm. what the, the lovely the sort of magic about seasonal eating is that if you do eat food in season it tastes better it tastes better 
and yeah. it cooks better and you know for even even people who aren't that experienced at cooking you will find that your food tastes better if you use good ingredients it's simple as that and that i find is such a pleasure it's like the food food's nature's reward to us for eating what we should be eating at that time of year I know when you said that I was thinking those first strawberries you have at the start of the summer always just taste so yes, good and don't freshly they? dug mm. new potatoes you know they taste incredible or even you know some people I I have this friend and we were laughing about beetroot I love beetroot but there's something reproachful about a, an uncooked beetroot in your fridge because you think, oh, God, you know, that's at least an hour. However, I've got two tips on that. First of all, as soon as you buy your beetroot, cook it, even if you're not planning on eating it, because cooked beetroot, looking at you in the fridge, is something mm-hmm. you can make a delicious meal out of really quickly. Um and my other tip, or not tip, but my other, um, you know, bit of knowledge to to share with things like root vegetables is the fresher they are, the quicker they cook. Oh. So, you know, a roasted beetroot could take an hour and a half if it's been stored for months and months, or mm-hmm. it could take, you know, 30 minutes in a hot oven if it's oh, fresh. I did not know that. I'm tempted to run yeah. out and buy some beetroot and give it a go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and if you can see leaves attached to things, it's a brilliant sign of how fresh they are, because obviously if the leaves are looking sad and wilted, then they're no good or not no good. But, they've you know, they've been sitting around for longer. Um, I love using the leaves of, you know, for instance, beetroot leaves I cook in the same way that I would cook chard or spinach. So it's like a bonus ingredient. And that's the kind of thing that one can get if you, you know, if you buy things in in a shop or a farmer's market or you know even maybe in a supermarket but where they're not all sort of chopped and prepared and put in a plastic bag Mm -hmm. you get you get some leaves as well yeah Yeah, (laughs) I call it added extra (laughs) we we called you a bit of added extra couldn't we um and we have to talk about the book then which is quite a nice segue from this idea of a, a year being a rhythm the seasons come and go and obviously that's sort of at the core of your new book so I'd love you to introduce it where the idea came from and how you sort of went about bringing it to life well as you say it, 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 the name suggests a lot it's called a year in the kitchen um and immediately I knew that the book would be seasonal mm-hmm. um Firstly, because that's the way I cook. But secondly, because as food editor for House and Garden, I have to think monthly because it's, an, it, you know, it, it's a monthly magazine. And thinking monthly is in, it's in some ways it's a challenge because there are some months which which are quite similar um, or they feel quite similar. You know, and for instance, I always find spring is that time, you know, it's allocated three or four months, but actually sometimes it doesn't start for the first two and you still feel like you're in winter. Um, So I'm choosing the recipes that I think the readers are going to want to feel like eating and cooking and reading about at that particular time of year. It's easier in autumn. It's obviously easier in you know winter, Christmassy period, and in high summer. But there are these, there are these sort of 
um, transitional seasons, I think, um, where we think about things in a slightly different way. Anyway, it is monthly, and I love that because it also allows me to focus really specifically on certain ingredients that yeah. don't stick around for long. So English asparagus, for mm. instance, um, forced rhubarb. They're both really English things. That beautiful pink rhubarb that they that okay. they sort of historically grow in the Yorkshire Triangle, and it's very romantic the way they've grown it historically because they've grown it in 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 barns which have been deprived of light which is why it's forced and therefore it's that beautiful pink color and they harvest it by candlelight in order to prevent any artificial wow. light getting to it and they were able to grow it up there because there was a big coal industry and the sheds needed to be heated in order for the rhubarb to grow and so it was cheaper for them to to do it where the um heat no source was coming from um, and I love these stories with the production of food as well and the sense of regionality, you know, Cornish earlies, those lovely early potatoes because it's warmer in Cornwall so they can come up then and the soil type is right. Um, so it's a very seasonal book and what I've done is I've divided it into the four seasons but I've talked about this idea that, you know, there is a sort of overlap often between two seasons at the beginning and the end. Um, but also I've highlighted star ingredients of that season mm -hmm. rather than try to be really comprehensive and talk about every single ingredient you might come across. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked about specific things. So, you know, there's a, and, and things that have a, have a, I have a particular affinity with. So we have this wonderful organic farm a couple of miles away um, and they do a lot of, seed saving um which is a which is you know an, a thing that farmers are getting into now rather than mm -hmm. using hybrid seeds and they're mad on growing leeks um so i've got quite a few dishes in my winter section where i'm cooking with leeks and there's this wonderful wholemeal flat tart with leeks mm -hmm. and potatoes and melted telegio on top which i think is the kind of thing one wants to in winter oh. right and 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 I've also mentioned you know the stages that one can do so you don't have to do the recipe from start to finish in order to have it ready for lunch you know you might have made the pastry mm. the day or the week before and mm. stuck it in your freezer and you know the leeks turn up in your veg box and you're pottering around on a Saturday morning and so you gently saute them so they're lovely and sweet and soft and you stick that in the fridge and then you know when the lunchtime comes it only takes half an hour to roll out your pastry put your leeks and your potatoes and your telegio on top and there you go you've got a lovely mm. meal oh I love Ooh, exactly as you say um so Yes, and then and then rhubarb, as I mentioned, I've got lots of desserts made with rhubarb. Um, and I talk about tomatoes in the summer, amongst lots of other things that I grow in my garden. A lot of a lot of what I've written about in the book is inspired by either things that I grow in my own garden, which isn't very big, but anyway, my I've got a tiny little greenhouse and it's just stuffed with tomatoes and basil in the summer. Mm. Um, or things that I get from my veg box from the um, community farm, which is a couple of fields away. 
um, or things that, you know, I've eaten when I've been traveling abroad that I've recreated at home with in my own way, mm-hmm. um, my own ingredient. Um, oh, amazing. It sounds like such a special collection of not only recipes, but the stories behind them. I love how each one has like a headliner ingredient almost. I think that's oh. really lovely and a really approachable way to start thinking about what you're cooking and eating. And the other thing that I, do, I I touch on a bit in the book is that you know often it's not it's not just about the food you know this is about giving people a way to cook that's not too difficult that gives them an excuse to gather around the table um, and to think about if you are going to you know put a couple of nice things on the table how it really elevates that experience of eating so yeah. You know, you might even just go outside and, and you know, pick some leaves from the hedgerow or you might walk past your flower shop and see that there's some sort of seasonal flower and get a few stems and put them on your table and light a few candles. And, you know, they're tiny little things you can do that make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to inspire people to think about how much one can um, sort of value um, the experience of eating. Oh, I love that. And I think that really comes back to what we were talking about, the kind of human side, the grounding side of being together, being in tune with the cycles of nature, eating. They're such simple human things, but can really ground you and really help, especially in those winter months when things are a bit a bit cold and dark. They, they really help, don't they? Yes. My, my tip is keep lighting candles. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. If in doubt, light another. <laughs> Exactly. Oh. <laughs> They're cheap and plentiful and they make a big difference. Exactly. Well, I was wondering if you have any top tips or say someone's listening to this, they're feeling quite inspired to try and eat more seasonally, be a bit more in tune with what's in season, what's not. How would you recommend they get started? Do we all need to go out and buy some gardening gear and start digging our own veggie patches? I think, I think well, given that... The, uh, most people are rushing back from work they're you know grabbing something to to make um in a short space of time i think try and bring a little bit of the feeling of leisure activity into your cooking and mm. you know if you do have a moment at the weekend even if you're not going to go to your local farmer's market maybe go and have a look if you've got a green grocer rather than a supermarket or go to the supermarket and see what they've got that's seasonal and you know put a few things in your basket without a specific idea of what you're going to do with them Mm -hmm. and then as I said before about things like the beetroot and the leeks and I do it as well if I have like a big bowl of um, onions building up you know cook them for no reason at all and use that as the beginning of something else you know so it's I think the idea is to break down the cooking stages so that you're not scared by the amount of time that something is going to take in a full block and just you know try something out that you haven't tried before if you've never cooked with rhubarb buy some rhubarb and give it a go see what it tastes like play around with it um or get a whole cauliflower and roast it um Mm -hmm. cover it with tahini sauce cover it with whatever you like to eat you know the flavors that that appeal to you I think just it's like a bit by bit um Mm -hmm. 
kind of attitude and I think that's a really nice way of getting into things yeah a very fun approachable way I really like that and are there any recipes in your book that you think people should start with maybe if they're just trying cooking for the first time properly or looking to just give something a whirl which ones would you look to recommend absolutely and I've really and 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 I've really tried to make a lot of these recipes approachable um there's there's a recipe in um, in the winter section, which is okay. So everyone loves it. Everyone loves a toad in the hole, right? Mm, you know, yeah. fluffy batter. Everyone has got those ingredients in their fridge already. Mainly mm-hmm. milk, eggs, flour. Yeah. Um, this one is with roasted vegetables. So this mm. is quite a nice way of you know buying those vegetables that maybe you don't normally get sticking them in a pan in the oven with some oil get them lovely and caramelized and roasty pour the batter on and you know that's a really easy way of not only you know serving food to a bunch of people but also to taste how delicious these these seasonal vegetables are so that would be one um there's a recipe that i've been cooking a lot recently which is um courgette roasted with capers and slices of lemon and slices of onions it's all caramelized and sweet and then you get these little like bursts of salty floral caper um and then you serve that on a on a bed of lentils with a tiny bit of vinegar in to give them some acidity oh that sounds delicious i love a courgette Rata of greens I make all the time. So if you're if you want to go a step further and you know get your veg box delivered, whether it's you know a lot of people I know in the city get the veg box delivered, um, and you often find that you get a whole load of greens and you get you know <laughs> yeah you, you get kale and you get spinach and you get chard and you get more of that. Okay, so I've 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 devised this gratin of greens where you basically you you blanch or boil all those greens you chop them up you make a sort of bechamel type sauce um and you bake it in the oven with breadcrumbs and a little bit of grated cheese Mm. on top lovely and it's an absolute winner and sometimes I make extra and I just put it in the freezer and then I can just pull that out and I'm doing a roast chicken and I've got that you know ready as my side dish so Mm, that sounds so good I love a gratin anything creamy I'm I'm there (laughs) yes exactly so yeah there are lots of things but you know there's there I I I really think there's the recipes in this book are very approachable Mm. and um, and hopefully make people realize just how easy seasonal cooking is yeah well I can't wait to go out and buy my copy and give some of them a go I'll be trying that gratin for sure um and it's been so lovely to chat before we do go I do have a quick fire round of questions for you okay let's do it are you more of a summer spring winter more autumn kind of person autumn oh and why is that oh I'm glad you were surprised by that I love I love the colors I love the way the sun is 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 low and the color of the the light is warm and yet the air is cold and also it's a wonderful sort of you know I was talking about I was talking about seasons sort of overlapping each other in a sense so you still get you know the end of the summer you get the dahlias you get the 
end of the of the sort of summer, you know, your last of your tomatoes, or you might get, you know, the your last bits of spinach um, overlapping with the squash and the apples and the mm-hmm. nuts and the pears, and you know, I find that is a it's it's almost like the most abundant season. I feel. Yeah, yeah, and I have to say, England often looks its best with those crisp blue skies and not too hot. Oh, yes, not too hot, exactly. <laughs> and what is your favourite dish to cook in the autumn then? Well, I've got a couple. I've got, um, I just love anything with squash. And mm-hmm. actually, this is a really easy dish as well. It's the old fashioned English term for this is a flan, but this is a recipe that I learned to cook in, in Italy, which they call a svormato which is basically means misshapen, um, which I think, you know, gives you an excuse to make anything quite frankly, but you do it in a, you do it in a lovely sort of, you know, oval dish um, and you whip up um, cooked pureed squash, sage, ricotta, eggs, um, and you bake it, loads of parmesan, and you bake it, and it sort of bubbles up a bit, and it's lovely and creamy and sort of custardy inside, but set, and you just have a great big spoonful of that in a green salad, and it's just the perfect warming autumnal lunch. That sounds delightful. I can't wait to try that. <laughs> and then from your time in Italy, well, what was the f- your favourite place uh, to live, and what was your favourite thing you learned to cook there? So my favourite place to live was probably Florence, um, not least because it was it's a very manageable size and the market, the central market in Florence is just fabulous. Um, I had a little greengrocer who I lived nearby and he was very patient with me because I was really learning how to speak Italian and I'd say most of the Italian I learned was corresponding with the greengrocer. <laughs> I cooked things that I took with me when I moved there, the Blue River Cafe cookbook. And the dish that I cooked the most, which is also um, a regional dish from that part of Italy, was a ribolita. And a ribolita is one of those fabulous soups that just keeps on giving. So the base is like a minestrone or a vegetable soup um, with carrot, onion, celery, it has stock or water, a little bit of squash tomatoes, cavolo nero, and then borlotti beans, and maybe some torn up bits of old bread. And the mm-hmm. ribolita means reboiled. And the idea is that you can just keep reheating it and it gets oh, better and better with a slick of olive oil over the top. And it's mm-hmm. the most delicious and warming soup that you can have. That sounds delicious. Also, olive oil can just elevate anything. I mean, everything. I know. I know. I probably spend more on olive oil than I do on wine. (laughs) Essential. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And is there anything you miss um, from your time in California, be it food or a way of cooking, living? I miss a lot. I miss the the amount of food that they were able to produce. Mm -hmm. So eating seasonally there would be much easier than eating seasonally here because there is so much. I also miss their inventiveness. I think because they don't feel so 
um, sort of harbored to, to, to traditions. There's so much invention there and people come mm. from all over the world and they bring different aspects of cooking. So there's a wonderful sense of liberation in a way. And I really mm. admire that. It's mm. quite multicultural um, and so lots of different influences. And I think it's a really, it's a really exciting and inspiring way to cook. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And then finally, if someone is starting out on their seasonal journey and they're inspired to try growing something of their own, what should they start with and what do you like to grow? I always think chard is amazing. It is like the gift that keeps on giving. It never seems to stop producing, (laughs) which is really, really very, um, very generous of it. However, if one wanted to grow something that is like high pleasure, a um, tripod of sweet peas that you just open, you know, to, to, to eat peas fresh out of their pods that you pick straight from the plant is the most extraordinary experience and something that you can only ever have when you're growing them yourself. And you don't need a lot of room, actually. You could grow them in you could grow them on a sort of plant pot on your balcony, even if you didn't have any outdoor space. I love it. So there's no excuse whether you're in a little flat in London like me or out in the country, you get planting those sweet peas. Exactly. <laughs> I want to come around and find sweet peas tra- trailing all over the front of your house. <laughs> they will be, I promise. <laughs> Oh, well, Blanche, it's been such a pleasure chatting. I'm feeling incredibly inspired by this talk. Thank you so much for coming to chat with me today. Thank you so much, Molly, and I look forward to hearing about all the seasonal things you're going to be talking Thank you for listening to this Snapshot Conversation. For more Curated Spaces content, head to our website, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 